I wanted to open up this morning by kind of asking you guys a question. Have you ever been on Facebook and just been kind of scrolling through? And you'll see a comment that somebody made. Um, maybe they posted something and it was funny. Maybe they said something and it was a little offensive. Or maybe it was just surprising and you were like, oh my goodness, who is this person? And so you click on their name and now you're scrolling through their profile. And you see, you find out that this person um, has two dogs, they have three kids that, um, you know, they post a lot more about the dogs than they do the kids, that uh, you know where they went to high school now, you know where they went to college, you know uh, what their favorite snack is, their favorite dinner, you know that they had an argument with a uh, co-worker this past week and that it, the resolution was not positive. You know that they are a homeowner, you know what their house looks like, you know that they have an in-ground pool, you know the names of their kids, their, uh, their spouse, their, um, their dogs, and it, you have all of this information, you know all of these things. Have you guys ever been there where you're doing a little bit of the creeping and just <laughs> finding out some things? I mean, let's be honest, how many of us do that? Um, I know I do. I hope I'm not alone. <laughs> that would be weird. But um, you're looking down through this, and you know all these things about them, but if I walk up to this person, and I'm like, Oh, hey, how are your kids doing? Oh, hey, I, I saw your dog uh, had sur- surgery this week. How, how are they recovering? Um, I, I really like the look of your pool. It looks really nice. I'd love to come over for a dip. <laughs> what do you think this person's reaction is going to be? Back off, man. I am, I'm calling the police. You need to step off. Because I would say there is a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Right? And I think that a lot of us, we can see that same development in our relationship with Jesus, right? We can have a a more impersonal relationship with him. And, And I truly believe that our confidence in Jesus grows as we learn more about who he is. And, and that's not just checking off uh, in our little check boxes uh, what he's done, but understanding who he is. By beholding Jesus for who he is, we're going to be transformed more and more and more. And I think someone really uh, illustrates this well uh, is Paul. And if we look at um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you see, Paul, he was someone who hated Jesus, hated who he was, um, hated his people, killed his people, but eventually ended up dying in the name of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That change comes over time, right? We're not just uh, one minute giving our lives to Jesus, and then the next minute we're ultimately changed. And the, the word for that is sanctification. It's a process that is lifelong. Um, I know that there are a lot of times that I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh God, why am I still struggling with this? Why is this still hard for me? Why can't we just speed this up? And God's looking at me and saying, uh, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Um, <laughs> but we, it, it's a lifelong process. It's something that takes time. Um, it takes time to be changed, but that change only comes from understanding who he is. And over the coming weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at who Jesus is. Um, and that's this week is our introduction into our series, I Am. And we're going to be looking 
um, really diving into this I am statements that Jesus makes. Uh, traditionally, you look at seven, we're going to be looking at an eighth. Um, but it's really going to help you to understand um, who he is by breaking each down and giving you the importance behind each of those statements. Again, not just what he's done, not that he walked on water, not that he turned water into wine, not that he healed lepers, not that he healed the blind or the sick, not that he, um, who he spoke to or what he did. It's about who he is. And what I'd like to do is actually take a couple of moments here um, and just in your seats, personally, bow your heads, and we're going to pray that over these next few weeks, while we're going through this series, that God reveals to you who Jesus is, not just what he's done, but who the person of Jesus is. So let's take a moment to do that. Father, we come before you again. Just help us over these coming weeks to dive into and not just read the scripture just to say, hey, we read this, we know this story about who Jesus is or what he is, but to really understand it deep in our hearts that God, we know who Jesus is and what he stands for and what he has given us and that God, we are able to carry that out in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, names are important, right? So when you're getting to know someone, when you're uh, introducing yourself, what's the, one of the initial steps that you take is giving your name, right? And I would say, I'm really bad with remembering names. I can remember a face um, pretty easily, but names are harder for me uh, to stick. Have you guys ever been like at the grocery store, maybe at the bank, or just walking around, and somebody comes up to you and they're like, "Oh, hey, how you doing? What, what's going on? How's work going?" And you're standing there like, "Uh, it's great. I hope that you're great. I don't remember your name really." And <laughs> that awkward moment of not remembering someone's name. It is not a great feeling. It has happened to me more than once. Uh, <laughs> and it, it drives me crazy. I know that when I first started here um, helping out, before I was even hired, I was trying to learn all the kids' names. And I'm writing them down because I just could not remember. There like 20 names getting thrown at me at the same time. I'm, so I'm writing them all down to try to remember who's who. Um, but knowing people's names is important. Um, and I have uh, an illustration for this. When I was born... There was a week and a half of my life that I did not have a name. Um, and the only reason for that is because my mom did not think things through. She had nine months leading up, plus that week and a half, to decide what my name was going to be. And she did not really think of a name. So I spent about a week and a half being called Baby Boy uh, until she finally Finally, after so much deliberation, writing names out to see which flowed best and which looked the nicest with Jared. Um, but it was spelled wrong, too. Um, <laughs> so it, if you look at my name, it's really pronounced jarred. Uh, it's a real word, and it is... Uh, she, she had a hard time. And then 
even after that, let's fast forward two weeks after that, she says, well, you know, I, I'm really not feeling the name anymore. I, I think I, I want to go and change it. And my grandpa's like, no, 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 please. Because we'd finally found a name. I was not going back to being baby boy. So that's why I have my lovely name now. Uh, but names are important, right? Uh, and when you look through the Bible, names are important there too, right? We see a lot of names that carry a, a heavy and important meaning behind them. Uh, names like Adam, which meant ground. See, Adam was created from the dust. Daniel, God is my judge. David was beloved. Isaiah, the salvation of God. And Noah was rest. See, these names carried weight to them. Uh, and, and that's not to mention the names that were changed to um, really either fulfill, to show the purpose that they were fulfilling in God's name or to show a turning point in their lives. Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations. Jacob to Israel, it was supplanter. Now it was rules with God or struggles with God. Simon to Peter, rock. Um, Saul to Paul. And as we look through these names, you start to really get a sense of God is, in the Bible, God is trying to tell me that these names carry meaning that they are important. So when we're getting to know someone, learning their name is a major first step. So when is the first time that we're introduced to God? Well, what I'd like to do is throw us all the way back to Genesis, and we're not going to go through the whole story, um, but I'm going to set it up for you here, uh, the creation story. We're looking at um, God is at the beginning, Right, And we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. That's the Ruach of Elohim. Um, and a first-time reader looking at this, somebody who is um, not Jewish, just looking at this, that word Elohim is not a name. It's a title. And so they're looking at it, and um, the word Elohim was often used for other gods in the area. Now, we capitalize it because we know it's the one true God, and Jewish readers that were going through this would understand this is the one true God. But you're looking at it, and you don't have a name. It's just God. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And those, those new readers, they would ask, what Elohim? Well, Hebrew literature um, does this really cool uh, playing out of themes, this beautiful tapestry that is woven through words and woven through scripture, that it plays out this theme of who is God as we get introduced to him more and more. And I think that it's really cool because, you know, all through Genesis, he's addressed as Elohim, and then we come to the Exodus story, and that's where we get another look into God's character. And we're going to open to Exodus 3, 13 through 15, um, but I'm going to set the stage for you first. For several centuries, uh, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, have lived as aliens in Egypt. And for a long time, they've been treated as slaves. And, and now we're at the point where the time of God's deliverance is drawing near, and a Jewish child is born, and his name is Moses. And he is providentially rescued from the edict of death by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the court. And as an adult, he defends one of his kinsmen by killing an Egyptian, and then he flees to the land of Midian. So now Moses has moved from Egypt, and he is hiding in the land of Midian. And, and there God appears to him in a burning bush, as we read in Exodus 3, 6-10. through 10. Um, And God said, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God, Moses is God's uh, chosen leader to bring his people out of slavery into, that, in, into the promised land, and we see that he shrinks back. He, he's a little afraid, as you might expect someone to be in that situation when God's heaping all this responsibility on you. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and so we read in verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the ch- children of Israel out of Egypt? And then God said in verse 12, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And that's where Moses brings us to one of the most important things that God has ever said. And this is our text, uh, Exodus three thirteen through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. This is so important. When you focus in on what this text is saying, it is so, so important. God is revealing a huge part of his character and who he is to his people. You see, God introduces himself as I am, which in Hebrew is Ehweh. And um, then he says to say to the people that the Lord God has sent you. That word Lord, when you see it capitalized um, through the Bible, you see Lord all in caps, it is Yahweh. And that is, he is, or he will be. And it appears over 6,500 times in scripture. Now, um, what I, I'm going down a little rabbit trail here, but I thought it was really interesting and something that you guys would want to know. Um, When we see that word uh, Lord, it's actually Hebrew Adonai. And that's because the word Yahweh the, the name of God was held in such reverence and in such uh, esteem that people wouldn't just go out and say his name. And in fact, even in their writing, they would put down Adonai to remind them to say Lord and not Yahweh because they just held it so much respect for the name of God. And who here has heard the name Jehovah for God? Have you guys ever heard that? Yes. Um, Jehovah, interestingly, is uh, another thing that was done in um, Hebrew literature and in the Bible where they would take the consonants from Yahweh and the vowels from Adonai and put it together. And it was another one of those visual reminders that, yes, we are talking about the God of everything, the God of all creation, the God um, that is above all, but 
We want to hold respect for his name. So they would never say Jehovah. They would say Adonai in that case. But it was another one of those visual reminders to remind them. So that's where we get that word Adonai from. Um, and, and so what we see is they're holding that name in respect. But what does that name mean? What does I am mean? Well, it, it means that God is. Or to say, uh, say it the way our text says it, God is who he is. Or to say it in a little more of a philosophical way, God absolutely is. This is the most basic fact and the most ultimate fact, period. Of the billions of facts that there, that there are, this one is at the bottom and it is at the top. It is the foundation of all others and it is the totality of all others. Nothing is more basic and nothing is more ultimate than that God is. Nothing is more foundational to this church than God is. Nothing is more foundational to your life or to your marriage or to your job, to your health, to your mind, or to your future than that God is. Nothing is more foundational to this world, to our solar system, to the Milky Way, the universe that God is. And nothing is more foundational to the Bible and the self-revelation of God and the glory of the gospel of Jesus than that God is. So let's, as we go through this, um, this really important foundational name and um, what it means, let, let's break it down a little bit. And I see ten things that this name um, I am means, or that God is and absolutely is. I, I found ten points of what this means. So, God's absolute being means that he never had a beginning. And I think this sometimes staggers the mind. And every kid at some point asks, who made God? And every wise parent says, nobody made God. God simply is and always was. No beginning, right? Um, Second, God's absolute being means that God will never have an end. If he did not come into being, he, if he did not come into being, he cannot go out of being because he is being. He is what he is. There is no place to go outside of being. And there is only he. Before he creates, that's all that is. God. And we're going to look at a text here, Revelation 4, 8. And it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is eternal. And God's absolute meaning uh, means that God's absolute being means that God is absolute reality. There is no reality before him. There is no reality outside of him unless he wills it and makes it. He is not one of many realities before he creates. He is simply there as absolute reality. He is all that was eternally. No space, no universe, no emptiness. Only God absolutely there and absolutely all. And we're going to look at Colossians 1, 16 through 17. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is reality. He is. Fourth, God's absolute being means that God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or to support him or to counsel him or to make him what he is. This is what the word absolute 
being means. John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. God is independent. He's the one that grants life. Five, God's absolute meaning, meaning uh, being means that rather than everything that is not God uh, depends totally on God. All that is not God is secondary and dependent. The entire universe is utterly secondary, not primary. It came into being by God and it stays in the moment um, by, by, being, by God's decision to keep it in being. God is the one that perpetuates our being. God's absolute being means that all the universe, when compared to God, is nothing. We are like um, a, a bubble to the ocean, an echo to a thunderclap, a shadow to an object. All that we see, all that we are amazed by in the world and in the galaxies is compared to God as nothing. Isaiah forty seventeen. all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God is the ultimate. See, God's absolutely, absolute being means that God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He cannot become anything. He is who he is, and there is no development in God, no progress. Absolute perfection cannot be improved. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. How great is that? Our God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and always. It means we can count on him. God's absolute being means that he is the absolute standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. There's no uh, law book that God turns to to figure out what is right. No almanac to establish facts. Um, He himself is the standard of what is right, what is true, and what is beautiful. Nine, God's absolute being means that God does whatever he pleases, and it is always right, always beautiful, and always in according with truth. There are no uh, constraints on him from the outside um, that could either hinder him in doing anything he pleases. All reality that is outside of him he created and he designed and he governs as absolute reality. So he is utterly free from um, any of the constraints that don't originate from the counsel of his own will. And tenth, God's absolute being means that he is the most important and most valuable reality and the most uh, important person being in the universe. And you see here, I have uh, God is the MVP. And um, when you're looking at the Super Bowl, uh, which just happened, you you know they pick the MVP at the end of the game. And sometimes it's easy to guess who they're going to pick and uh, who the quarterback or the the best running back or they're going to pick that most valuable player. And sometimes you're you got a good guess as to who it's going to be. Well, when it comes to God. We don't have to guess. He is the most valuable player in all of existence. The most important, the most, important, the most foundational, what we stand on. And we're going to look here um, at a verse 
we go to the next slide. First uh, Chronicles sixteen twenty-eight through 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We can lift that praise to the ultimate and most important being in the universe. How cool is that, that we get to lift our praise to him? And how worthy is he of that praise? When we look at who he is and how important he is, it's so amazing that we get to be a part of that. And I want to kind of bring all of the ideas of what we've talked about uh, together today by connecting this idea with Jesus. And we're going to start out with um, a familiar story. Who here has heard of the woman at the well? The story of the woman at the well. We're going to be going through that. We have a lot of reading that we're going to do today, um, but we're going to work through it together, right? So we look on the scene as Jesus is passing through Samaria, and we're going to start uh, at John 4, 7 through 26, and I'm going to read that for you. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where would you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are now, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship with Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who you speak to, am he. And so we're going to um, fast forward a little bit here and um, kind of flip to verse 39. Not that the verses in between aren't important or the um, infallible word of God, but uh, for the purpose of what we're learning here today, we're just going to move forward a a little bit. And so we'll start with verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. 
And many more believed because of this word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. See, the the thrust, the driving force of this text is that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything that happens in this whole entire story is because he is the Savior of the world. Jesus cuts, uh, we see when this opens up, that Jesus cuts through Samaria, and usually what would happen is Jews would go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem, because um, even it says here in the text that uh, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So usually they would go around, but Jesus cuts straight through, and it's because he has an appointment with this woman. Um, And what I'd like to do is talk about who this woman is. See, the Samaritan woman is not there um, at the well at the normal time for getting water. In um, the Middle East, in that, that culture, in that time, women would go early in the morning, and still do, go early in the morning to gather the water because it was cooler. They didn't want to be walking uh, a mile in the sun, two miles in the sun, in the heat. So they would try to get there early so the cool of the morning would be easier on them. And then they would stand there and they would talk at the well. This was their time for uh, socializing and being with each other. Um, But this woman is not there during that time. She's there in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. It's hot. Jesus is weary. Um, and you see that this woman is walking, carrying water at this point. Um, and we see why. It's because of the five husbands she had and the man that she is with is not her husband. And this is something that would have made her an outcast in her community. And even could, uh, she could be killed for this. And she carried that shame. And we see her response. She, she spends her time, she spends her effort, she spends her vitality hiding from the judgment and the looks and the, the uh, words that were being said and thrown around by hiding. Have you guys ever been in that situation where somebody is either talking bad about you right in front of your face or they don't know you're there and they're saying something awful about you? That's a horrible feeling right, when somebody does that. But, um, and, and that's what this woman is trying to avoid. She's trying to hide from all of that. But Jesus is there. We see that Jesus so forwardly confronts the sin in her life. And uh, she asks for the water that he offers because she is weary of coming out in, in the hot day. And Jesus says, bring your husband. He's confronting the stuff that's buried. Jesus is going after the space that only he can heal. See, she was tired of coming out there every day. See, she's had five husbands at this point. So this is an ongoing issue. This is something that she's dealt with probably over the course of years of having to come out in the middle of the day, in the hot of the day, to carry this water back. And she's like, oh, yes. If you can offer me this water that I don't have to drink again, I want that because I don't want to keep having to come out here and hide my shame. Jesus is going after the space that only he can heal. She's hiding from judgment up to this point, and yet she's not free. She's enslaved by that sin. And her response to Jesus initially is, well, when the Messiah gets here, 
he's going to tell us what to do, right? When he gets here, he's going to give us all the instructions on how we can, how we can fix this. And Jesus answers, I am. John 4, 24 through 26 again here. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who you speak to am he. In scripture, we see um, what I like to call hyperlinks. And um, that's where it's kind of a throwback to something else. And what, what Jesus is making um, is a hyperlink here right back to Exodus three thirteen through 15. And what does the character and the presence of Jesus do for this woman? She is released from her guilt, from her shame, from the weight of her sin, and she becomes a witness of who Jesus is and brings others to experience that same exact freedom. And that brings me back to my initial point that we started here um, at the beginning. We can know about someone, or we can know someone. We can read this story, and we can look and we can say, okay, well, I've checked the box. I know uh, what Jesus did here. I know that he went outside of cultural norms. I know that uh, he called out a sin. And, the, and, and we check it off in our checkbox and say, okay, well, we're done. I know that story, and I can remember it. Or are we going to take the opportunity and the chance that we have to be changed by the overwhelming character of who Christ is? Have you ever had a personal encounter with Christ where you have seen who he is? See, Jesus invites us to be a part of the eternal Yahweh God and what he has for our lives to be a part of that story. Isn't that amazing? See, do we want to know him or keep it impersonal to save us from being vulnerable? Vulnerability is hard. See, a lot of us, we want to be authentic because that that's um, popular now. You want to be authentic and say what you really mean and be who you are. But it's hard to be vulnerable and to open up about the pains and the hurts and the things that are uh, impeding our relationship with the Lord. But that's what a relationship with Jesus is. Utter vulnerability. And today is the day to make that decision. Are we going to keep our hand out and say, God, Jesus, I will know you, but only at a distance or to step in and say, God, I'm ready to be vulnerable. I'm ready to open up. You are the one that I can lean on, the one that I can trust because you are the great I am. You are the one that was here at the beginning, who was here at the end, and who was here all the way in between because, God, you are the MVP. You are the greatest. When we lean on him, we find new life. We find freedom from guilt. We find freedom from shame. Make that decision today. If you've been waiting and saying, God, I'm just waiting for the time when it sounds right or when I really feel you pulling me. God, no, now is the time. Now is the day to give your life to him. I'm going to be in the back. The elders are going to be in the back. We want to pray with you and help you to make that decision. 
If you have a relationship with Jesus and you're saying, yes, I, I know about him, but I don't know him. Now is the time to dive deeper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for inviting us to be a part of who you are, this eternal story and your eternal glory, that, God, we can be in your presence and feel that freedom of that uh, guilt, that shame, the weight of our sin, that, God, you can lift it away because you've done it. You have done it. You have sent your son. You have sat, that sacrifice has been made on our behalf. We just have to reach out and take it. God, help us to see that. Help us to know the importance of knowing not only about you, but knowing who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.